Welcome everybody out. We're glad that you're here and invite you to get your Bibles and follow along with us as we study from the Word of the Lord. And we'll begin here in Hebrews chapter 11 and hope that you'll be able to follow along with us and hopefully that our time will be profitable as we open the Word of the Lord. Good to see everybody out on such a frosty, cold morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, beginning, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing, uh, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, which the Egyptians attempting to do were drowned. In particular there, in verse 25, we want to look at that phrase, the treasures of Egypt, or the treasures in Egypt. Some, some translation says in Egypt, but same the point. The treasures of Egypt, and there were tremendous treasures in Egypt for the pharaohs and the leading ruling class, and uh, that's what we're going to study about and develop our lesson around what's talked about here in Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> A few years ago, I was preaching up in uh, Danville, Indiana. Danville, Indiana is just west of Indianapolis. And I remember seeing uh, the advertisement for the King Tut exhibit there at the Children's Museum. King Tut is, is short for Tutton Common, Tutton Common, Tutton Common. And anyway, when I was up there, uh, there at Danville, uh, going to the Children's Museum downtown, it wasn't all that far. Uh, went not all that far. And so I mentioned to JR, I said, uh, JR Bronger, I said, you know, it would really be really neat to go see that. He said, you know, that's kind of interesting too. And so his two youngest, uh, or two of his grandchildren, and that's, that's actually Paige, there's the little girl on the right, and her twin brother Levi, uh, they went with us and we went over to the Children's Museum to see the King Tut exhibit. And uh, anyway, it was really interesting in lots of ways. Uh, because they had different artifacts from Egypt, and not only from King Tut, there's only a few artifacts from King Tut, but there were others. Uh, the discovery of King Tut's uh, tomb actually is the 100th year anniversary at the end of last month. This fellow named Howard Carter discovered it, discovered it in November 1922. Been hidden for like 3,500 years, uh, buried under the sand as they built the tomb and they covered it up, uh, because there was all of these tomb robbers, and there it lay for 3,500 years until this fellow happened to find it. And uh, anyway, there you got his photograph, and there he is. When they actually get in, it was actually probably well over a year till they get into the inner tomb there, and he's uh, looking at the coffin, because they were, they were very meticulous in cataloging and taking photographs, and they would cover it all back up and uh, to prevent... Uh, uh, robbery, etc. So it was a it was a really a long process getting all those artifacts out, etc. But there were different things. And you have this was would have been carved out of a piece of some sort of onyx, which uh, took a lot of time, very meticulous to carve that out of a solid piece of stone. And then this uh, I don't know 
Maybe you could burn incense, you could put jewelry on that, uh, this gold figurine there. And then, uh, of course, a lot of things made out of stone. Likely people wouldn't steal those things. Well, even those a lot of, represents a lot of work of, uh, of things, but they're real heavy, so not likely that people would steal them. But there were other artifacts there also. After they get everything out, they have a museum there in Egypt. But that, that would be really interesting to go to Egypt and see the Great Pyramids and lots of other things there. And, of course, the King Tut exhibit. And there's kind of, uh, well, it was... Uh, well, it was actually a big stone case, and then within that stone case was this other case, and then within that case is the mummy, and then the head, uh, uh, the head uh, over the over the mummy there. But there's some of the artifacts that are displayed uh, there in the uh, museum, and then that's the the chair, the throne chair of the boy king, King Tut, very meticulous carving overlaid with gold, and uh, just uh, really, it's uh, it's really pretty pretty interesting and very meticulous and uh, would represent a lot of wealth and etc. Uh, after they did like to, took the mummy and they did cat scans of it and got the shape, uh, somebody then took wax and uh, the basic uh, form of the skull and you see the elongated head and what happens a baby's head when it's new they put like bands around it to let it grow long and they sort of kept that under wraps because these were the kings, you know, they were special people. That's why their head looked different. And, uh, but anyway, it's, it's really nothing, nothing special about that other than that you can change the form of the head. And, uh, but that's part of the things that they would do, uh, you know. To, uh, it's like magicians. It's like Simon the sorcerer, you know, doing things by sorcery and trickery and then put it off as the great power of God. And these kings, they, a lot of the kings, uh, uh, they had... Uh, uh, they, they, they sort of got so full of themselves thinking that they were gods and, and deifying themselves and that they were somehow special and different than just the regular people. And it's not true. We we're all, we're all have feet of, uh, of clay. And in here, anyway, here is the, the, the headmast there and people coming through and looking at all the very valuable artifacts because it represents treasures galore for the people there. Uh, here's one of the uh, kind of a pocket game that kings would have, and that's a lot of meticulous work. Here's a particular necklace with various jewels and, of course, gold. And then this solid gold necklace, and that would represent lots of ounces of gold. And, of course, you see some of the rich people today, you know, like uh, some of the rappers and basketball stars. They'll have these big, heavy gold chains that weigh several ounces. It costs hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, just the gold itself, uh, let alone the making of it. And uh, that would certainly represent what would happen there uh, uh, in, uh, in the ancient civilization. And here, of course, is that, uh, that outer coffin there. And then this figure here that looked like a keyhole. When we went into the exhibit there at the Children's Museum, you were not allowed to take pictures. And... Uh, when we got in the car to go back uh, over to Danville, uh, Paige and Levi and Jr. and I think Sue went with us. And anyway, I said, uh, I asked the kids, I said, what do you find to be most interesting? What do you like best in this museum? All these Egyptian artifacts at the King Tut Museum. And Levi said, because they had on display, that was the royal toilet seat made out of marble. So I could... <laughs> 
I couldn't make a picture of it. So I started to give a, a, a kind of the shape of it. It was like a two-inch slab of marble. It was about a two-inch, two-foot square. It had that, that keyhole that they would set down on that. And that, well, that's, that, that's a kid's perspective. He thought, he thought the royal toilet seat was the, the neatest item. He had all these gold artifacts and all these valuable things, but he liked best the royal toilet seat. So that was kind of, kind of humorous. All right, so anyway, you look at all these treasures, and here we have the death mass of uh, uh, one of the kings. Uh, it was actually the death mass of uh, uh, Susanus. Susanus. And it, I think it was the one that was on display. The King Tut's mask and some of the artifacts no longer traveled out of Egypt. They had some problems, and so they just stay in Egypt now. But this death mask uh, was made out of solid gold, and it weighs about 60 pounds. 60 pounds of gold. And if you can uh, convert that to troy ounces, that equals 874.89 troy ounces of gold. Now, I looked on the internet, and the price of gold per, uh, per troy ounce is $1,806 a troy ounce as of Friday. Now, if you multiply all that out, just buying the gold, that's not making the, the mass, but just buying the gold would cost you one. $1,580,231.90 to buy that 60 pounds of gold. And that's just to buy the gold to make the mask. That doesn't count making the tomb. That doesn't count all the artifacts. That doesn't count the chair, the royal throne, all these various artifacts that were stuffed into this and the making of and carving out into, into the stone. I mean, you're talking about gazillions of gazillions of dollars to make a tomb and then stuff all these treasures into that tomb. Now, when it talked about in the Bible the treasures of Egypt, that is the evidence. There was a lot of treasures. But you don't have to look back far in history. Actually, the majority of the people were quite poor. A lot of people, I, I was looking at on the, on the Internet, just looking at 100 years ago, people working in a cotton mill factory down in Alabama, they had like all this chart and where you had the different workers and different classes, but the majority of the workers were making on average $7 or $7.40 per week. And then if you count $7.40, uh, $7 well, anywhere from 7 to $7.40, and you multiply that out per month, and of course you have to take some taxes out and stuff like that, you could get you a $20 gold piece. A $20 gold piece has approximately an ounce. So you would figure out that you would have to work uh, 874 months if you didn't spend any of your money, just a common worker. And all, what that multiplies out, that, that represents a lot, a lot, a lot of labor. And that was common in the world that we live that we lived in just a hundred years ago. People lived on less than two dollars or a dollar a day. The, 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 the wealth that, that, that people have in the world more so now is far greater than it was uh, in the, the biblical time. But there was always those few that were just extraordinarily wealthy, like the royal class. And then, as you look at some of the treasures, let's go to the King Tut's uh, head mask that was inside the tomb that's actually over the head of the mummy there. The death mask of uh, Tutankhamun, 
very intricate, very detailed, very, uh, just, it's beautiful. I mean, the work and the craftsmanship is extraordinary when you look at that mass and the details of it. But it weighs 200 pounds. 200 pounds of gold is 2,916.66 troy ounces. And if you multiply that out uh, times $1,806, you're going to have to fork over $5,267,487.90 just to buy the 200 pounds of the bullion gold I don't count crafting it to that beautiful mask and then all the stones that are inlaid with that. that the treasures of Egypt, it, it, it's astounding. You know, I was calculating up, even if you, even if you look at the figure today of $1,806, if you were making just a kind of a, a little bit over average, more than minimum wage, you were making $11, $12 an hour, you, you could bring in probably about $1,806 per month. And if you're going to buy this 200 pounds, you know how many years that that figures out when you multiply 2,916 months? You divide that up. You would have to work a common worker, a common worker, not, not, not even spending for himself, just you work and you save all that $1,806 every month, you're going to have to work 243 years to come up with that $5,267,000. 200, 243 years. A common worker would have to come work 246 years, not, not spend anything on yourself, just working and saving all $1,806 per month and putting it in a piggy bank to come up and to buy that much gold. I mean, that's incredible. The wealth that the, that the pharaohs and the ruling class had. And so when we talk about the treasures of Egypt that the Bible speaks about, yeah, there were tremendous treasures. And Moses, of course, when you think about the treasures of Egypt and all the great wealth that is represented as you look at these, these photos of some of the artifacts of King Tut, you know, Moses could have lived royally because he could have been the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He really wasn't the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he could have. And it's an interesting, interesting thing because there in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, how, how did he get into that position even to be that he could have been counted as Pharaoh's daughter? Well, you go back to the book of Exodus and it sort of explains what happened. You read Genesis, you remember Joseph, he became second in command, and he was right under Pharaoh. And for a long time, the Hebrews, they... They, they were favored people because of Joseph. But then there arose a king that knew not, jo uh, knew not Joseph, and therefore the descendants of Joseph and the relatives of Joseph. And so the kings became paranoid, and it looked like as they were looking at the Hebrews, they were multiplying, they were expanding from, uh, uh, you know, the 75 souls that went down there to like a couple of million people or so, and they became very strong. And so they decided that, well, we, we need to kind of squash these people because if, you know, somebody come fighting against us, maybe they would turn and fight with the enemy and then we would lose. And so he was out uh, suppressing people and, and uh, et cetera, trying to get the, uh, the midwives to kill the baby boys. And, and then, well, they, they, they feared God and they didn't do that because that, who could do such a horrendous, horrible thing? But that's, that's the de degeneration of people that, that get away from God. 
And so in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 21, And Pharaoh cherished all his people, saying, Every son that is born of you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. All right, so the baby boys, they're the ones that represent in a war would be the men folk. And so I right, just kill the baby boys. We'll let, them, we'll let the girls live. And so we move on into Exodus chapter 2. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and he took a wife of the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw him that he was, fine, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took uh, for him an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it uh, with tar and with pitch, that is to make it waterproof, and put the child in it. And she laid it among the reeds, that is sort of like we would think of cattails, uh, there by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done unto him. This is baby Moses. And verse 5, And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when they saw the ark among the reeds, she sent uh, her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. Three months old. That would be like Miss Paisley back here, about the same age. And a baby cried. And especially for a woman who... who can be very emotional if they see a baby crying. It, it just, it just, it would melt your heart. It, you, compassion would just well up in your heart. And so this baby's crying. And so she had compassion on him and said, "This is one of the Hebrews' children." Then said his sister, because she's Miriam, she's over there watching. So she comes up and, and and she and this is always interesting to me. And then then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. So Moses' mom is going to be there nursing the child and having the opportunity to help train the child about his biological origins. That is, that he is actually a Hebrew. But he's growing up there in Pharaoh's court, and so he actually learns all the wisdom of Pharaoh. And we'll look at that passage in Acts chapter 7. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, because Moses means drawled out, draw him out of the river. Uh, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, let's look at that passage there in Acts chapter 7. It gives us a little bit more insight of what was taking place. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and reared him as her own. That's what we just read uh, there in Acts 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deed. And when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Well, now, how did he know about the children of Israel, that they were his brethren? Well, because his mom at a very young age instilled that information into him. The information about God, about Jehovah God, the true and living God, not the false gods of the Egyptian, but the true and living God instilled that knowledge into him. And so he had that insight, but then he also learned the ways of the Egyptian, the Egyptian wisdom. And that's where we get back into Acts, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 there in verse 25 that he could have had and could have lived royally. And he could have thought, well, you know, why, why, why do I need to be associated with these Hebrews? I mean, they're just the working class. They're the slaves. They're the slave class. Uh, slave class. They're the servant class. And, and here I am among all this great wealth of the Egyptians because you see those pictures. You, you know there was great wealth for the Egyptian pharaohs and the servants and all that 
he could have had. And so what we learn is that he made a choice. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. You see, he, he makes a choice. Now, am I going to be counted in the royal family as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Uh, you know, am I going to be, you know, like the grandchild of a great king and all the wealth of the royal family? Or am I going to take my lot with who I biologically am? That is, with the, the Israelites. Over here in the royal family, they serve false gods. The Israelites, they're serving the true living God. And so it's really a, a, a choice between, you know, the Egyptians, the royal family, and the false god, and the Hebrews, the servant class, and the true and living God. You see, we do have the power to choose. Our Calvinist friends, they, they talk like, you know, well, you can't choose. You're just so dark and God's going to have to somehow enlighten you. You don't have the power to choose. It's not so. We do have the power of choice. There in Joshua chapter 20, 24, verses uh, 14 and 15, Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites and whose land you dwell, now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Moses, he made a choice. Am I going to serve Jehovah and be with the Israelite people? Or am I going to stay over here in the royal household and all the wealth and the luxuries that would be for the royal family with all the kinds of food that you could want, etc.? And so he made a choice. He chose to go with God. And notice something else there in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. When it says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. See, not only the royal uh, lifestyle, but then the royal lifestyle for the sinful pleasures. Sometimes sinful pleasures can be costly. They cost a lot. And he could have had that too. But he chose, no, I don't want that. Because when you talk about the pleasures of sin, and there is pleasure in sin, that, that's, how that, that's how the devil can tempt us to do wrong. That's how he can say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Enjoy this. But those pleasures are just temporary. There is pleasure. And that's what tantalizes and draws people to participate in wrongdoing. If it was something that was very repugnant and horrible and, and just... Uh, how could the devil tempt you to do it? It's like if you hate broccoli and somebody says, oh, look at this broccoli casserole. Look, oh, it's just so, it's like there's no temptation at all because it's like it's repugnant to me. It's like, ugh. And you, could, you couldn't even pay me to eat that broccoli because it's just horrible. And that's how the devil is able to tempt us to wrongdoing because there are pleasures that are associated with sin. And uh, so, but Moses, he chooses, uh, I need to go with God. I need to stand on what's right. I need to follow the way of righteousness. And so it is. There in Luke chapter 10, it says that, that uh, uh, there with uh, Mary and Martha, uh, there in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which should not be taken from him. See, Moses, Moses made choice. 
He could have went with the royal uh, lifestyle and the, and the sinful pleasures that would have afforded him uh, to have that lifestyle, but no, he exercises the power of volition to say, no, I want to go with God. I want to follow the Lord. I want to follow Jehovah. I want to follow the true living God that his mother would have taught him when he was such a little feller there. Look there in verse 26. Esteeming the approach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for the recompense of the reward. You see, by the eyes of faith, he was looking down the stream. I mean, you look at those treasures. I mean, you look at that gold necklace and the value of that. You look at that royal throne seat. You look at that mass, the death mass. You look at all the things, royal chariots, servants galore, musicians, the, the, whatever food you like, people to wait on you, hand and foot, all these things. But you know what? When you look at all these things, they are temporary. They're last for the here and now. And so he was looking beyond. He was looking toward eternity. And that's what we have to look forward to, is that we look to eternity. In Romans 6 and verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of everlasting life, to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, it's just incredible to think of it that way. There in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it this way, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, which he, he says, yeah, there are treasures on earth. There, there's no doubt about that. There are treasures on earth. I mean, you look at that gold necklace. If you had a gold necklace like that, you, you're going to shell out, even if you took away just the historical uh, value of it, and you just took gold and made that, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a gold necklace like that. Yeah, they're a treasure, something that is very valuable. The, Jesus is not denying that they are treasures upon earth. He acknowledges it. And so he says, lay not up treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. You look at some of the garments that people wear. I mean, you can buy dresses, you can buy clothes that cost thousands of dollars. It's incredible. Thousands of dollars for, for clothes. And then if moth gets in and he's holding it, ah, it's like, ah, it's frank. And you, you just, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's worthless then. And so rust can, uh, uh, moth can corrupt. And rust, ah, you get this nice, shiny vehicle and you drive it out. If you live in Kentucky and you got salt and salt gets in and salt is corrosive and then in time, you know, it begins to rust. Yeah. And then he says, where thieves break through and steal. So you think something like gold, so moths are not going to eat gold or silver and rust is not going to corrupt them, but then thieves can take them. And what he's, what he's saying about treasures on earth, they're temporary. They're temporary. So he says, in, in, instead of laying up treasures upon earth, which are temporary, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And that's what Moses is doing. He's looking down through the stream of time. Yeah, he could have had all these great luxuries of being part of the royal family and living the life of sin and, and pleasures and, and etc. But you know, that was temporary. And uh, he looked beyond. He looked to eternity. Uh, over there in the book of 1 Peter, Peter talks about that. Blessed, verse 3, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, 1 Peter 3, 1. 
chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begun again unto a living hope, or lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. And all the things of this world, they wear down, they break down, they corrupted, they're stolen, they're marred. But in eternity, that won't be. There won't be doctors and there won't be medicines and there won't be surgeries and there won't be loss of health and there won't be things wearing out, breaking down, tearing up, stolen and marred and polluted, etc. Because it will be a perfect place for eternity that will last and continue throughout eternity. And then he goes on to say, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, Moses, if he'd have been like King Tut, maybe they would have built him a king, uh, him a tomb as king. Maybe he could have become a pharaoh and they could have stuffed it full of treasure just like they did King Tut. See, that was going to be for his afterlife. 3,500 years, he never used not one thing. They put in that not one thing. He didn't use one thing. It was still there when they discovered it 100 years ago. It was all still there. Which says that things of this world are temporary. And that's why we need to look beyond this world. We need to look into eternity. You see, Moses feared God more so. Look back once again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see, he, he could have been part of the royal family, but then when he like cast his lot and goes with the Israelites, well, it's like, this guy's a traitor. He's like a Benedict Arnold. And, but he wasn't worried about the king and his anger. Because, you know what, king, king got mad. They, they could cause real trouble. I mean, you can have presidents like, uh, uh, you know, governors. They can get mad, and there's certain things they can make hardships for you. But when you go back in the old times, the king was not only executive. He also had judicial power. He also had legislative power. He could just create a law. He could just give the, give the say. He could be judge and jury and say, this guy, get rid of him. Just take him out and kill him. I mean, that's the kind of power they had. There was no trial. There wasn't, you didn't go through anything. You just took the orders of the king. And they could just do that. Very capricious to do those types of things. But Moses wasn't worried about the wrath of the king. He had more fear and respect for God. Because it says, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He couldn't see God with his eyeball, but he could see God by the eyes of faith. Jesus tells us this way. Fear not them who can kill the body. Yeah, could the king kill your body? Yeah, he could kill the body. That's what human beings do. They can kill your body, but they're not able to kill the soul. So Jesus says, don't fear them, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Proverbs 1 and verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It all begins with seeing God by the eyes of faith to have more respect and fear and all for him. It moves you to make wise, wise choices, good decisions as you serve God. And then notice there, lastly, as we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, you see the underlying thing is that Moses had faith in all of these things that, that we read about. 
By faith, Moses. You see, he had faith. He, there was certainly plenty of evidence of the truth of God. And the evidence that God is, uh, that he's the creator. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked for the recompense of the reward. Verse 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is invisible. Verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover. You think, what does, it, what does it have to do with anything? Yeah, well, but this is what God said. You keep the Passover, and that Passover saved them. When the angel of death came through Egypt, the Israelites were spared because they put the blood on the sides of the, of the door and on the lintel top. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. And so, you see, they observed the Passover and they were spared. The Egyptians, from Pharaoh down through the servants, all their firstborn died that night. Through faith he kept the Passover in the sprinkling of the blood, lest he, should be, uh, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground, which the Egyptians attempted to do were drowned. You remember they left Egypt and they're heading down to the peninsula. So you got the army of Egypt on one side, they've got the Red Sea on the other side, and they've got a desert. Well, you don't got a desert because you don't have water and you're going to die, and you can't fight the Israel, uh, the, the uh, excuse me, the Egyptian because they got armies and swords and all that, and they got the water. And God said, "Don't worry, got this covered." Moses raises his rod, and the waters part. That's just tremendous. And it's like dry ground. You know, I've seen where they like drain a pond and they cut a hole and that, all that water drains out. And that, that, do uh, that dirt, that soil down there under that pond, that stays muddy for weeks. In a hot summer, it'll stay muddy for weeks before it ever dries out. But the waters of the Red Sea parted as it were dry ground and zoop, they went right across. That took faith to step out in those walls of water on each side but by faith, that's what they did. They got to the other side. And the Egyptians, they thought, hey, we can do this too. And they went in. The Egyptians were, the Egyptians were there in the midst and the Israelites were safe. And then God just let all those waters come crashing back in and they were all destroyed. Yeah, that's the power of God. That's the God that we serve. That he had tremendous power. He has demonstrated his power over and over through history. And that's the God that we serve. Yeah, maybe we'll not have the opportunity to be, you know, get in the royal family or get into some uh, rich, super rich family. But one thing for sure, we can have the treasures of heaven if we choose to look by faith to the world to come. So the question is, are you seeking the treasures of heaven? You can do that. We can seek the treasures of this world. The treasures of this world are only temporary. The treasures of heaven are eternal in the century. The plan of salvation is clearly revealed. That is, we hear this good news about Jesus dying upon the cross. We believe in Him as the Son of God. We'd be willing to repent, to confess before man, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and to be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38 says. Then we come up out of that watery grave. We are to cleave unto the Lord. And if we do err, come back through repentance and prayer. We're going to sing this song to your encouragement. Are you seeking the treasures of heaven? And if you're not, and you decide to do that, we can help you in any way. You come and let us know while together as we stand and as we sing.